So it is a thing whenever we engage any text or indeed any conversation that we naturally seek to harmonise the meaning of what we're encountering to the framework that we currently have because that's what makes sense to us. So you might read these things and they might be unharmonisable for you and so you might set them aside. But really Jesus is here trying to be deliberately disturbing. He's trying to shake the tree. He wants us to stop in our tracks and to contemplate something that is so different that we can't imagine it. That's what is in this passage. He talks about there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars when he starts to return. Now, this shouldn't surprise us because the physical world has always offered signs. You might remember, we'll celebrate it shortly, the star led the three wise men from the east, you know, signs in the stars. You might remember at Jesus' crucifixion, there was some kind of eclipse that occurred. The sun went dark. This is not a new theme. The, the, the great bodies in our created order testify to great moments in history and just how they'll do that when Jesus returns we can't say, but there's a theme here that's consistent. But then he goes on to say, there will be on the earth dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the waves of the sea. Now, it's not like the waves will get bigger, maybe they will, but the sea is this place of chaos for the ancient Near Eastern mind. It's where everything is uncontrollable. And we get this picture of dismay and perplexity, the uncomfortable ideas. Interestingly, the word dismay, which in the Greek is a word sunoche, actually means holding together. So dismay is holding together. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. The other word perplexity, which is aporia, means seeing no way forward. So surely holding it together is what we kind of do all the time. Aren't we meant to hold it together? You know, you have these moments like Joe's family are grieving at the moment. They talk about, let's hold it together. Let's hold it together. Um, But you see, if the thing is falling apart and we can't accept that it's falling apart, that's when we need to hold it together. If it's falling apart and it's okay that it falls apart, we don't hold it together. So like at a funeral, you don't hold it together. You wail. You cry. You mourn. You're supposed to. Don't hold it together. That would be dismaying. Why hold together that which should not be held together? It is actually our response of wanting to hold something together that really needs to fall apart that creates dismay because it's not a sustainable strategy and we know it. If the reality depends on us holding it together, it's not the reality. You see this in an economic uh, framework with the government's response to the global financial crisis. Now, I'm not going to bore you with a bunch of economics. This is the Dave Gore simplified version that Paul Apps will probably jump up and go, that's rubbish, but um, give him him your uh, attention because I know nothing. But my understanding is there was the repackaging of bad debts into these packages of um, things that got marketed around the world and people bought them and suddenly it became apparent that they were 
bad debts. And when this reality began to show itself that banks and really strong institutions had bought loads of these bad debts, the system became quite wobbly. One really well-known bank went under. So what did the government do? Well, not our government only, but all governments. They held the system together by pouring billions of dollars into it so that it wouldn't fail. Now, I'm not saying this was a right or wrong thing to do necessarily, but the interesting thing is that we're so inside this economic system that we can't allow it to fail. And so we must hold it together, even though loads of people around the world suffer when we do that. Not the wealthiest, the poorest. Because when we throw loads of money into holding the system up, we don't throw it at world aid and we get tighter in terms of who will let access to money and those kinds of things. We don't know what else to do, so we hold what we know together. It's a survival instinct. In one sense, it's not good or bad, but it's not sustainable. And I think we haven't seen the last of the global financial crisis. In a kind of a way, and bear with me on this one, I think domestic violence has a similar structure. Domestic violence is often about control, one member wanting to control another member of the household because they need to hold their reality in a particular way and if it gets out of hand they use violence to keep it in the way they want it to be. It's a resistance to unwanted reality. The reality is if I don't exert coercion, things will change in a way that I'm not comfortable with. That's the reality. That's a reality I can't come at, so I will use my force, my power, my coercion to keep my reality in a particular constructed form. It's a a constructed reality, a creation of a, a false reality in a way. And I put it to you that... We do this all the time in, our, in the way we do life. And again, it's a, it's a strategy for survival because life is so out of control. But holding it together is sometimes not the thing to do. It will cause dismay as more and more information comes in that that's not the reality. What we're holding together is not the reality and it's going to go. And we are in dismay and perplexity. It even says that men, and I think it mentions men, but it means all people, but, you know, grown-up people will be fainting with fear. Not exhaustion, not from the flu, but from fear. They'll be so scared. This apocalyptic stuff is not for the faint-hearted. What makes a person faint with fear? What kind of things would make you kind of not do the automatic thing of, trying to survive or saving your loved ones, what makes your response... Well, again, I think it's when we cannot see a way forward, this perplexity idea, when we don't know what to do, when the only thing we've known is falling apart and we can't hold it together anymore, that is the most fearful place. It's overwhelming and it's all the, more so, all the more so if we think that everything depends on us finding a way through or holding the thing together because then so much is riding on that. So that's what Jesus says is, is ahead 
guys, so, you know, buckle up. Is this good news or bad news? Because, come on, we are the good news people, aren't we? Interestingly, Jesus goes on to say that as people are fainting from fear and the expectation of the things that are coming upon the world and the powers in the heavens are being shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud. Now, I don't need you to conjure up some kind of image of what that might look like. I've tried through my childhood and it doesn't work. I don't know how you ride clouds. But this is actually Jesus borrowing a prophecy from the book of Daniel in the Hebrew Scriptures. And it's a passage that comes in the midst of the description of competing powers, these horns, these empires, these great powers that are fighting one another and dominating the world through their force and their violence. And in the midst of that comes one like a son of man, one who is humble, one who doesn't have the usual expressions of power and coercion. He doesn't come on a war horse. He doesn't come in a tank. He doesn't come with a nuclear weapon. He's the son of man. He comes as a man, as a person, on a cloud. He does not use force, but dominion is given to him. He doesn't take dominion. Dominion is given to him. He doesn't arrive on a horse, he arrives on a cloud. His dominion is not from violence, it's not fueled by the coercion that is so familiar to us in the world. He's not one who is holding down the opposition or holding a particular reality together. This is one who can handle whatever reality comes. This is one who is comfortable on the earth and its Realities. Consider for a moment the political power of Nelson Mandela. He emerged from prison and into the highest office in his land. In his pre-prison life, I understand, he used some tactics he perhaps wasn't proud of in his post-prison career. But when he emerges from prison, he doesn't need to use those tactics anymore. Dominion is given to him. He stands as a figure of peace and reconciliation. Now, he's not a perfect figure by any means. But if he'd used violence, if he'd used coercion, if he'd used political tactics, that actually would have diminished his authority, his influence. He didn't need to do any of those things. He just needed to be him. Quite extraordinary. He held that authority in his person, not in a truncheon. And that's something of what we're talking about when the Son of Man comes on the cloud. And this dismay and perplexity occurs in our midst. It's, it's our task not to be defeated by it. So the dismay and perplexity will happen. People will be dismayed and perplexed all around us. And rather than being defeated by it, we do the opposite. Jesus says, but when these things begin to take place, straighten up. Lift up your head because your redemption is drawing near. These are signs of the outworking of salvation. Hang on a minute. This chaos, this perplexity, this dismay, salvation, that's what Jesus is saying. We lift up our heads, we straighten up, not because we delight in distress, not because we 
uh, like seeing people in perplexity, but because we hope in something eternal that remains beyond the dismay. It remains beyond the perplexity. We don't need to hold it together. It is. A two-year-old child tried to sneak back to her parents from children's church but wound up on the stage. She looked around and just closed her eyes. (laughs) And my assistant will now demonstrate. (laughs) That's a beautiful demonstration. This is perplexity and dismay. And this, this is what we do because when it's overwhelming, we shut it out. Thank you, Susanna. You are brilliant. I couldn't have asked for better. You see, there is something more real than all that we conceive. There's something more real than all that we imagine to be real. Everything we hold as absolute will pass because it's not as absolute as the absolute. We can't know that stuff. Only that which is of the kingdom will stand. And the part we access there is the way of Jesus, the self-giving way of love that creates life, that offers life. In contrast to that, we have the scape... Sorry, part of that is the scapegoat-naming, mob-resisting way of Jesus an authenticity that stands for all eternity. The world does it a different way to Jesus. Jesus does it in a way that will stand for all eternity. Another political example would be the frail, hunger-striking Indian man who overthrew the British Raj. He didn't use violence. He didn't use an army. He stood for something that... an idea that time had come that all the armies of the world could not have resisted. This is the kind of thing that we're talking about here. This is the kind of power at work here. So don't be dismayed. Everyone around you might be dismayed, but don't be dismayed with them. Know that this is part of the process. And we'll see it around, you know, whether it's that group over there who are chopping off heads or whether it's the group over there that are polluting badly or whether it's that, you know, the dismay is going on. It's happening. We don't need to be dismayed with it. We can know this was anticipated. We can lift up our heads and stand for that which is good in the midst of it. Do not be distracted. We can't help but be affected by what's going on around us. This is because we're social beings, okay? This is healthy. It's natural to join in the dismay and perplexity of others. When you hear someone you care about going through a tough time or they're grieving and crying, you're moved. You participate with them. It's appropriate. It's a a part of our human empathy. So we should expect and welcome a challenge in this regard. We should expect and welcome that we will also be knocked about a bit by this perplexity and dismay. Don't be discouraged by that. That's you being human. Good on you. But don't enter into it in the fullness of saying that's the total of reality. There are many dysfunctional coping strategies that will then come into place Uh, Use of substances is an obvious example and Jesus mentions drunken carousing. Well, we all know drunken carousers, don't we? I've been one, so there you go. Um, Many people will use drugs and alcohol. Um, But there's other people that will use other things like their work or their family. Ways to keep that really uh, distasteful reality away from ourselves. And when we ask those things like work or family to be an escape for us, they become a burden 
to us. Anything we ask to bear the weight of saving us from reality that we'd rather not see will become toxic for us. Whether we close our eyes, like Susanna did a moment ago because it's just too overwhelming, whether we immerse ourselves in our work because that's the place we feel meaning and safety, whether it's in our family, whether it's the drugs, whether it's the alcohol, whatever it is, if we ask it to be our rescue, it will become toxic for us. Doing something to escape pain and discomfort and distress is an understandable survival strategy. Understand that survival strategies are different to life. Life is in the other direction. We keep coming out of the high or sobering up from the drunken thing or realising that there are people outside our family or things happening that we can't control in our work and we will come under threat. Reality hangs around and waits for us. It doesn't go away. So if we're trying to escape it, we're in strife. And some people will even use religion as an escape. Some people will even use Jesus as an escape. And sometimes uh, this is the way the gospel is even presented, an escape from material hardship or from a lack of meaning or relationship challenges or from hell, whatever that might mean. But the whole thrust of scripture and the stories of Jesus in the Gospels move us into a more authentic embrace of greater reality, not a move of escape from reality. Jesus takes us into that which we find threatening and invites us to face it with the hope of resurrection. And this is the kicker. That is the hope of resurrection. Not that we avoid the death that we fear, but that we go through the death. We face it. This is the strength of the one whom we follow. He didn't see the cross and go, that looks really uncomfortable and unfortunate end. I think I'll you know, sneak out of the Mount of Olives while nobody's looking. He had every opportunity. He knew what was going on. He went through death, went into the grave and came out the other side and he invites us to follow that way. Face reality. Encounter the dismay and perplexity. You will die in some way through that process and then you'll come out the other side a whole new person, well, not a whole new person, there's continuity and discontinuity, just as there was with Jesus. I don't know if I've held you through that, that journey. I believe in this stuff so passionately. I think it's the hope of the world. As we gather around this table in a moment, we're going to break bread, we're going to share the cup. We are not engaging in a group delusion to help ourselves cope with the overwhelming reality of the world. That is not what we are doing. We are focusing on the person who willingly, knowingly gave himself to us and for us. We focus on him so that, we might, that he might show us how we might live that kind of fullness in our own lives. We focus on the one who came through death and became the champion of those who hope to do the same. That's what I hope to do.
not just when I, my mortal life kicks off, but each day, in each relationship, in each challenging circumstance. This is the king we worship. This is the one we say we want to follow. This is the one who's coming in all his fullness to gather those who would be his people and we would welcome him. Let's pray. Lord, these are confronting words. We'd much rather hear you say, don't worry little children, I'll protect you from everything bad. But in a sense this is even more powerful because you say, follow me little children and I will lead you through everything and nothing will defeat you, even if you die. And we want to follow you in that, Lord. We want to follow you in that. In your precious name, amen.